want you to do. Uh, um, what I want you to do is just take one minute, not more than 60 seconds, kind of 360 degrees around you. Just say hello to whoever's right around you and tell them the dumbest thing you've ever done. Okay? Go. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like there's some good stories out there. And you definitely can continue sharing these uh, after. <clears throat> but um, so I was thinking about one of the dumb things that I've done, and immediately I came to this story um, for the summer after my sixth grade year. I was at camp, and some of you might know this camp. It's called Camp Beckett. It's in the Berkshires in Beckett, Mass. And uh, there you go. We got a Beckettite there. We can start singing some songs. Um, but uh, I and I had gone to the camp this first year that I was at camp with my friend down the street. His name was Mark. And Mark and I, this camp honors the fact, like, when you want to be in the same cabin, they let you be in the same cabin. So I'm in the cabin with my friend Mark. And for whatever reason, we, um, the, the cabin activity that we had planned was uh, unavailable. So we just, our counselors took us to the baseball diamond, and we were just going to play some ball. And so um, somehow I get on base, <laughs> miracle of God, move of God. And uh, I'm on first base, and, uh, you know, so I'm, and, and Mark is, is, is fielding at second base. And so I just, it's like, I just decide that no matter what happens, you know, if, that, if, if this next ball is hit by the batter, I'm just going to make it to second base no matter what. I'm going to stop at nothing. So sure enough, the ball gets hit, and I just start to make my way down the baseline to second base. And, uh, you know, it's fielded well so that whoever fields it throws it to Mark so Mark can throw me out, and I just don't care. I say, I'm getting to base. And so I just plow into Mark, send him kind of flying, and make it to second base. And it's those things where, like, you know, the counselors are kind of looking. There's the counselor in the CIT just kind of looking at me, looking at Mark, just kind of going, you know, Neil, what is your problem? You know, like... <laughs> Mark, Mark had the tag, like it was no problem, but I just was so determined that I just plowed him. Actually, Mark was injured. We had to stop the game. Our whole cabin had to, you know, he had to go to the infirmary, and we had to just go and do something else. And I'm just thinking, I just really want to get on base. Like, what's the big deal? But there was this resolve in me, and here's that great angle from first base where I said, I'm going to matter I'm going to show them I can play ball. I will get on base. And that resolve went so deep that I was willing to stop at nothing, including Mark's health, to get there. I just decided that that was from, when I passed from like the innocence of childhood to like the, uh, I don't know, the non-innocence of adulthood was in that moment. So my question is, what about you as far as that resolve to matter? You know, how, how does it affect you? There's that resolve to matter, a resolve to get it done, I resolved to say, hey, I can play here. You know, it's funny. We, we grow up, but, you know, in all the, all the um, jobs that I've held in different offices or positions, this drive has always been there, and it plays itself out in every organization. So what about you? You're a student. How does that resolve hit you? You know, are you saying, I will prove myself academically? Maybe you're a student on your floor. You're thinking, I will, you know, be friends with these guys or these girls. They will know who I am, and you know, it might come out in different ways, but, you know, I, I want to show them that I'm important, that I'm valued, that I can, I can hang with them, whatever it is. Maybe you're sitting here as an employee, and, you know, same kind of drive. My contribution matters. 
I'm going to show my boss that I'm worth my salt. You know, I can carry my own here. That drive comes up. Or I'm better than that guy, you know, than my peer here. I can show that. Maybe your parent, you know. Kelsey and I have just been talking about how, hey, in our, in our desire to discipline JD, what can happen is we can't get prideful and say, we're going to discipline him because he's going to be the best behaved. He's not going to embarrass us in Starbucks. Like I was in Starbucks the other day and a kid had a total meltdown, you know, total rebellion meltdown. And, you know, even right there, I'm just like, oh, God, have mercy on her. Like, it didn't bother me because I was like, I know what that's like. But I, but I also, you know, in my heart, I said, ooh, we don't want that to happen to our child. You know, we're going we're gonna to make sure he doesn't do that. You know, and there's a pride thing. You know, we're going to prove ourselves as a parent and whatever. You know, I'm going to make sure that JD is a hockey player. You know, vicariously live my life through him and all this <laughs> nonsense. You laugh. You laugh. But, uh, I mean, come on. Uh, let me put the mirror back on you, Okay. <clears throat> Or maybe you're retired, you know. Maybe you're more um, on the other arc side of, of the lifespan. And, uh, and this question actually really does, you know, the question of legacy gets really important as you hit 50s and 60s and 70s. God, you know, what is my impact? What have I done with my life? I need to show that I matter here. And so, you know, we're going through this whole Transform series. And what I want to say is that desire at its core is not bad but that Jesus is going to show us a really dangerous way to deal with that desire. And that's as we open the scriptures today, we're just going to say, okay, Lord, we all got this desire. It really is God-given. There's a God-given desire to be significant. There's a God-given desire to make a difference. You know, when God gave us the rule of the garden in Genesis, he said, you know, you guys can have dominion over it. So there is something in you that says, I will do this, and it's godly. It's not bad. But how we go about it is so important. And we have been talking about, if you're just joining us today, we're talking about, hey, like Isaiah 42, 1-4 gives us a picture. We may be a bruised reed. We may be a, 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 a wick that's about to be snuffed out. But Jesus loves you and he takes you in your brokenness. And then his desire is to heal you. And then Jesus has got a great mission for you and me. He's got a beautiful uh, handcrafted special mission for you to fit in the fact that he's launching you and I to the nations. He's launching us into his purposes. You know, like Lindsay, she said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be launched in the purposes of God. And whether that means she stayed a teacher or whether she went to Africa saying, God, I'm yours, that's really not the question. That's like her and God to work out. But for you, it's just, are you being launched into his purposes? Whether that brings you across the street to the school next door or across the world. And we've been talking about, all right, so what's the first way you get transformed? Consistent face time equals total transformation time. We've talked about you've got to figure out how to spend time with Jesus on your own. Second thing we talked about was discipleship. Okay, you want to have someone investing in you. Ideally, this is an ideal, and we want to help you walk through it. Ideally, you've got someone investing in you, and ideally, you're giving it away somehow. And there's some relationships in the kingdom that are key for you. You're getting encouraged and you're able to give something away. And last week we talked about transformation takes a team. You need a team. And so that's why we do our faith groups, okay? So you need a team and you want to be a part of it. Now for transformation today, we're looking at this question of you need to matter. You, you are made to matter, but how does Jesus want you to do it? So let's look at Mark 10. Mark 10, we'll check it out. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 10, uh, verse 35. Otherwise, it's on the screen. We'll follow along.
How is it that we are supposed to deal with this? I need to matter. I'm important. I'm significant. Okay. Love these guys. Mark 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, right, two brothers who are in Jesus' 12, they came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> wow. I mean, here, Jesus, here's our blank check. Will you please sign it, you know? It just cracks me up. These guys are, are funny to me. It's, I, I, man, I wish I could have been there because I think there's a lot of humor happening here. I think this is like, it would have been fun to be there. So Jesus is going to play along for a little bit. What does he say? What do you want me to do for you guys? You know, I can just kind of hear Jesus. What's up? What is up? And, and, and be mindful of the fact that just before this, Jesus had, for the third time, he'd explained to his disciples, this is what's going to come. I will be persecuted. I will be tortured. I will be killed. But on the third day, I'll rise. But just like you and I sometimes... You know, the purposes of God are just right over us. I think the purposes of God are going right over these guys as they come with this request. Verse 37, it says, They replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Now, remember, had these guys seen Jesus in a little bit of his glory? James and John? So when, like when they're asking this, do they have something tangible in mind? You bet they do. Because remember also, whether it was a few weeks or months or maybe even a year before, Jesus had brought James and John and Peter with him up to the mountain and he had met, he had been transfigured. The real Jesus kind of shone with all the brilliance and glory that we see in the book of Revelation. He kind of, he got transfigured before them. And Peter and James and John were witnesses to seeing Jesus in his glory, talking with people who they thought were dead, but were alive in their resurrected form. Elijah, you know, Jesus was talking with some of the Old Testament figures. They tasted this glory. So when Peter, excuse me, when James and John come and say, hey, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory, they're kind of saying it secretly, apart from the ten, because remember when Jesus was transfigured, he said, hey, you guys don't tell anyone about this until later. So they come up secretly, and they've got a great picture of what Jesus' glory is like. They, they saw it. They said, hey, can we be at your right and your left? We just want to be with you. And by the way, the, the Matthew version of this story says that kind of, again, I wish I could have been there, but kind of like James and John were like, hey, Mom, you go ask him, you know? So we're not exactly sure how, how, how it happened, but in Matthew, it was like the mom who came up and said, hey, Jesus, my two boys, can they be at your right and your left? You know, either way, whether it was mom who did it or them, we know that it was pretty much them that put her up to it. You know, they're the source of this thing. So, what's Jesus' response? Verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. You have no clue. You guys are clueless, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And those words, cup and baptism, they're referring to suffering. Right? Jesus knows he's about to suffer. He's on the edge of a suffering moment. He's asking, can you guys drink this cup? And cup is often associated in the Old Testament with the wrath of God. Right? And Jesus knows that he's about to receive all of the wrath of God for your sin, for my sin, and the sin of everyone who's ever lived. Eight billion people on the planet today. You know there's eight billion, somewhere between six and eight. But you know there's more people alive today than have ever lived on planet Earth? 
And for every single one of us, Jesus was going to receive the penalty for your sin and my sin. He was going to drink the cup of God's wrath. He says, hey guys, can you drink that cup? Can you be baptized? Can you go through the same thing I'm about to go through? How do the guys answer? 39, we can. (laughs) Again, totally clueless, right? We sure. Why not? Sure we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. In other words, you are going to go through some suffering. But to sit at my right or left hand is not for me to grant. These places have been, those, excuse me, these places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And indeed, history will show us that they will not receive Jesus um, as Jesus did. They won't receive the full wrath of God, but they will suffer. Acts 12, so you know what happened to James? Later, he becomes, after Jesus is resurrected, James is put to death by the sword, by King Herod. He's put to death by a sword because he loved Jesus. And John, although history, kind of the best accounts we have history says he, he's the one of the 12 who didn't, or one of the 12, Judas killed himself, but one of the 11, he's one of the 11 who didn't die a martyr's death. He was nonetheless imprisoned on an island. He was uh, imprisoned for a while, but history tells us he probably did get out at the end and, and probably died a natural death, but he went through some imprisonment. He went through some real suffering for Jesus, for his sake, for the sake of the kingdom. And then there's this great picture of Jesus being subject to the Father, right? Jesus says, you know, Philippians says that Jesus gave up some of his authority. He's fully God and fully man, but Jesus gave up some of his authority while he was on earth. And so he's just doing what he does. He's just deferring to the Father. Hey, I don't know exactly who's going to be at my right or my left. That's for my Father to decide. So, kind of a raw deal. James and John started out going for something. I don't know. I feel like after that conversation, it kind of got zinged a little bit. So, what's going on with the other ten? They hear about this. What do you think their reaction is? You can imagine. It says, verse 41, When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. You know, what in the world are you guys doing? They became totally indignant. And so Jesus recognized what's going on. He hears the mumbling. He sees what's going on. He says, all right, guys. Like, before I leave, we've got to get something straight here. And maybe you've, I don't know, you ever been in that kind of situation? I... I remember when I was teaching sixth grade, and uh, we had, um, this is right out of college, I taught middle school English at a Christian school, and uh, I had these sixth graders, and they just would not stop picking on each other and putting each other down. And so finally, like around January in the, in the school year, I just kind of put my foot down and said, this is going to end. I'm so sick of hearing you guys do this. You're, you're destroying each other with your words. We ended up calling it the sixth grade miracle together, because we kind of came out of the year saying, okay, we're going to learn how to use our language to bless each other. But I just got so sick of it. I said, this is, we got to deal with these hard issues here. I think Jesus had one of these moments. He said, I'm sick of this. You guys, stop, stop this. Let's, let's talk about this. This is what Jesus does. Verse 42, Jesus calls them together and says, all right, you guys know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And of course they get it, right? This is Roman-occupied Israel, Roman-occupied Palestine. So they see how the 
you know, how the, how the, the, the centurions work and their armies and then how the, the government officials and they just lorded over them. But they actually didn't need to look that far. The same kind of things were going on as we see in our reading of Mark. The same things are going on in the Jewish culture and the Jewish family. And the, in the family too, it's the same kind of thing. Pharisees lording it over the others, the religious rulers lording it over. But Jesus kind of omits that here. He just kind of points to the Gentiles. You know how, that's how it works over there. What does he say in verse 43? He says, not so with you. The world says this is how you need to matter. This is how you need to exert your own authority. This is how you need to get that need to be recognized as capable or competent. And He says, not so with you guys. It's going to be different among my people. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Everyone say servant. And Jesus kind of is going to make his point here. He wants to hit the nail on the head and he says, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Everyone say slave. Can we just think for a second what Jesus is saying when he says slave? Slave has no rights. Slave exists totally for the benefit of his or her master. Economically, agriculturally, you know, in that agricultural world, our trade world, it was so that the master could get full benefit. No rights and no benefits. Now, a wise master does take care of his slave, but the slave is without rights. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then here's the zinger, Jesus, Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I'm sure that Jesus being the good Jew that he was, as he was saying that verse, probably had many different things in his heart. He had the law in his heart. You know, in, in um, I can't remember if it's Exodus or Deuteronomy, there's a point where it just says, hey, before, um, when the census is taken in Israel, when we take a census, each one has to pay a ransom for their life. And Jesus has probably got this in his mind. And he might have the Psalter, the Psalms in his mind, where Psalm 49 talks about how you can't ransom someone else for their life. It's, it's kind of, you should check it out, Psalm 49 sometime. I won't go into it right now. But of course, I'm sure what Jesus has in mind is Isaiah 53, the very thing that Josh led us reading today when we gathered this morning. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Jesus knew he was stepping right into it. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's my thought. You want to matter? You want to, important? I, I want, you want to be important? I sure do too. But there's a part of us that's also saying we want to be transformed by God. And so I would posit this morning that transformation starts with a serve. Everyone say serve. And just say with me, transformation starts with a serve. Let's say it together. Transformation starts with a serve. Man, the people who, I honestly, I'm blown away by the people we got serving here, practically, you know. Um, uh, Anita Coco gets here at 8 in the morning, and she's helping to set up chairs and uh, set up all this stuff, and um, it's just incredible. And she's always innovating. You know, she decided that, uh, Anita Coco is the one who decided, all right, so some of you guys, when you first come here, you see those signs that are outside, those big, um, uh, those sandwich board signs? We used to keep them here. Then Anita Coco says, you know what? That's dumb. Why keep them here? It takes too much space. And plus, we have to go out and get them. She's like, I'll just, I'll just keep them in my house. And as I come to church at 8 o'clock in the morning, I'll put out those sandwich board signs so people can find their way to the harbor for the first time. Anita has figured something out. She's figured out 
that being transformed by Jesus, it starts with a serve and a heart to serve. She's not building her own kingdom, her own agenda, but she's just giving her life totally the purpose of God in a great servant-hearted way. And it's always weird when I do these things, I call out one person because I should call out 70, you know, because there's, and there's you guys, some of you I don't see that much, I know you're serving in other capacities, not just here at the harbor. That blows me away. Transformation starts with the serve. I want to share three little stories just to get, get stirred up. I get fired up by stories. We'll kind of go, we'll go last, uh, a story per, per century if you're okay. We'll start in the late 1700s. How's that? Late 1700s, Revolutionary War. There's a, a bunch of soldiers trying to repair a wall. And uh, the corporal over them is just barking orders. Do this, do that, get that done, do this. A civilian comes galloping by on horseback. Says, what's going on? Guy dressed in civilian clothes. How can I help you guys? What's up? He says, and the corporal says, I'm the corporal, and we need to build this wall. Man gets off his horse, starts repairing the wall. They finish. The man from the horseback says to the corporal, Corporal, next time you need help, you ask your commander-in-chief, and I'll be glad to be here. It was General Washington. I love that. I love that story. No one is above serving. No matter where you are and what capacity you are professionally in your family, you're not above serving. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's go 100 years later. How about 1800s? There's a great move of God in England facilitated by a man named William Booth. Not sure if there's any relation to Josh Booth who gives announcements. William Booth ended up starting a movement that got called the Salvation Army. And just so you know, the Salvation Army, I know today we just think of jingle, jingle at Christmas, 10 cents in the, in the pot, and that's kind of our experience with Salvation Army. But William Booth was a man of God, and the Salvation Army was a move of God that was very life-giving so that people could know Jesus. Well, this move was so exciting that there was a, a minister here in the United States, and he was on his way to becoming bishop. So I can't remember if it was Episcopalian or Presbyterian. No, sorry, it wouldn't be Presbyterian. It was... Um, Episcopalian or maybe Methodist or, you know, one of the mainline denominations where that's their structure. And he was going to be bishop. But he saw what God was doing in England. And he said, I'm going to go hang out with the Salvation Army. So he gives up his religious uh, title. And I'm sorry, just so you know, I'm not saying that bishop is a religious title. It's okay to have bishops. I have oversight. But the point is, he gives up kind of his advancement in the church in the U.S., goes to England. And William Booth says to him, I'm afraid that you've been your boss too long. Here's what I want you to do. Will you shine the shoes of soldiers, you know, in the Salvation Army? Because actually, kind of, you know, they wore nice kind of uniformy things as they do today. And he said, um, well, he did it. And he, he was shining shoes, and he just started to grumble and complain. He thought, God, what have I done? Like, I've left my opportunity. I've left my ministry. I've left all of this uh, in the U.S. to shine shoes. And what did God do? God brought him back to that John 13 passage where we see our Lord and our Savior, the King of glory, who did not need to condescend to us, but Jesus washing the feet of Peter and the other disciples. He said, if my Lord washed feet, I can shine shoes. Amen? Ooh, that gets me. And I say, Lord, change my heart attitude. You know, let me not be offended when I have opportunities to serve. Let me do it. And the third kind of story, well, let's bump up a century in the 1900s. And um, uh, 1973, uh, there's a senator, and um, 
Yeah, John Stennis, senator from, he's a Democratic senator from Mississippi. John Stennis, he actually comes home uh, from a day at the Capitol and uh, is entering his apartment. He gets shot. He gets shot at by a burglar. He's rushed to Walter Reed Hospital. Soon enough, other senators find out what's going on, and there's a certain senator that comes to the hospital, Walter Reed. And he notices that the big need here as uh, Senator Stennis, excuse me, make sure I have this right, sorry, uh, yeah, Stennis. I know the other one. I just don't know this guy. Stennis is. Um, it's going to take seven hours to get uh, his the the uh, bullet wounds taken care of, and he'll make it. He'll end up making it. But this other center shows up, and he sees the need at the hospital is the switchboards are going nuts because everyone's calling in from all over to find out what happened to Senator Stennis, and we'll be okay. Will he be okay? So this gentleman overcoat puts his overcoat down, takes up one of the headsets. And like from midnight to seven, you know, a solid seven hours, he just runs the switchboard next to the other operator there. Seven in the morning, he gets up, says, ma'am, you know, I'm, uh, I, thank you, I'm glad I could help out. And, and um, it turns out it was another senator, it was a Republican senator, Hatfield, um, from Oregon, who had just served for, for seven hours this, um, this other cause. And, um, and it was in a period, actually, much like now, like in 73, kind of like now, things in Washington are very toxic. They're still difficult in Washington. And so for a center from one party to serve a center from another party without any sort of, um, you know, accolades or whatever was kind of interesting then. So again, I share that really simple thing, just taking up what was needed, taking up the headset, doing what was needed. He served. Transformation starts with a serve. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to read a little excerpt from um, a guy named Richard Foster. We, we love him around here. And it's a book called Celebration Discipline. You know, when you start talking about servanthood, then what immediately gets um, poked at is our heart. You know, like our heart attitudes, our heart... Um, gets exposed. And I know, for example, Anita Coco doesn't come at 8 o'clock every Sunday morning to serve hoping that I'll give a shout-out for her, you know, and that's like the pinnacle of her life. She's not hoping for that. She just serves with a clean heart. Sometimes our hearts get confused. Listen to um, how Richard Foster kind of helps us delineate what, what true service is about. And he calls self-righteous service is what we do sometimes. Sometimes we serve so everyone can see. Isn't this great? You know, I'm such a servant. I'm so humble. Right? He helps us distinguish this. Self-righteous service comes through human effort. True service comes from a relationship with the divine other, capital O, on the inside. Self-righteous service is impressed with the big deal. True service finds it almost impossible to distinguish the small from the large service. Right? It doesn't matter what you're doing or who you're doing it for. It's just service. Self-righteous service requires external rewards. Hey, let's have a barbecue in February. How's that? <clears throat> True service rests contented in hiddenness. Ooh. Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. True service is free of the need to calculate results. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve, right? Oh, I'll serve President Lindsay. I'm not going to serve my roommate across the hall who annoys the heck out of me. True service is indiscriminate in its ministry. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims. I don't feel like it today. 
True service ministers simply and faithfully because there is a need. Self-righteous service is temporary. True service is a lifestyle. It's just who you are. You serve people because it's in you. Self-righteous service is without sensitivity. It insists on meeting the need, and even when to do so would be destructive, right? I'm going to serve this way. True service can withhold the service as freely as perform it. Hey, if it's needed, I'll do it. If not, it's okay. Self-righteous service fractures the community, but true service, on the other hand, will build community. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to think of James and John's request in Mark 10. They said, Jesus, we want the glory. I want to be with you in glory. So my question for you, for me is, how are you right now? In what way and in what domain are you trying to seek status and control? It's often very subtle, which is why we have the Holy Spirit to help us. We need the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts and examine our motives and say, Lord, where am I seeking control and status? Like James and John saying, I just want your glory. You know, I want the glory here. Okay? I want you to do that right now. Say, we're going to pray together. Because remember what we started out with, which was God wants to give you influence. He wants to give you significance. You are significant because you're his son and his daughter. What are we seeing in the first song this morning? We say, I know I'm loved by the king, right? Ooh, that's the beginning. It's just, I know I'm loved by the king. And knowing that you're loved by the king, he wants to bring you into all sorts of ownership, and, and he wants to bring you into all sorts of authority and things like that. But when you're trying to grab it, it doesn't work. Jenna, come on up. Let's get the worship. Jenna and Jeremy, why don't you come on up? And I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit examine our hearts. Father, thank you uh, that you love us. Thank you for the model of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus... He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And thank you that Jesus washed Peter's feet. And Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, which were definitely muddy and disgusting and gross. And Jesus got into our grossness because he wanted to serve and love us so badly. And we need to do likewise. Thank you that we have a king that we can follow in this area. Jesus is not asking us to do something he himself did not do. He endured the torture on the cross. So Holy Spirit, you're our counselor, you're our guide. And Holy Spirit, we invite you into the depths of our souls and our motives and say, Holy Spirit, will you please show us where our service is self-righteous and lead us towards service which is true, which is truly transformational. Expose our hearts, search us, dear Lord. And then, Holy Spirit, I also ask you in a very practical way. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you care about the practicals. And I pray, if there's any of those, um, if you're speaking to different ones of us here to serve in some of those volunteer areas we acknowledge this morning, whether it's worship or front door ministry and ushering, whether it's Sunday operations and a lot of our technical stuff, whether it's faith group leading and interning, 
whether it's children's ministry, or perhaps it's an area that we haven't thought of yet, and there's a there's a, a an area that needs to be birthed in our church that hasn't yet been birthed. Holy Spirit, please, you work out the details. You get people aligned with where they need to be and what they need to do for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the kingdom of coming. Here, we pray. Jesus name. Amen. I want to encourage you. Uh, hey, there's ways to serve. And um, we need, I want to give a couple of practical encouragements. And one is we need a little culture shift here. And that culture shift is this. This church service happens, A, because of some dedicated people, but then B, because every faith group rotates what we call SOS, Sunday of service. And I want to change, there's a culture change that needs to happen. And what it is, it needs to be when it's your faith group Sunday service, I want you here with joy, okay? I want you here saying, yes, I get to serve. I get to be hidden. I get to set up chairs. I get to set up these tables. So as as you guys are getting involved in our faith groups, and then your leader will say, hey, by the way, next Sunday is our Sunday service. They'll explain to you what that is. But it shouldn't be a drag. It should be, yes, I get to serve. And I just think about the 12 tribes of Israel. And how they all served one another. They each had special jobs. And how the Levites and their tribes had, each one had different things to do with the temple and the tabernacle. And it was a privilege. It was an honor. That's the attitude change we need here. We need an attitude change that says, I'm so glad it's my Sunday service. I'm going to get there. I'm going to bring food. I'm going to come. I'm going to set up. That's just a practical way that God works out this value in us. Because one day it's stacking chairs. But for all you know, the next day it's XYZ. It's you. It's God raising you up in your company to do this. It's God raising you up in your dorm to do that. It's God raising you up in your family to do this. Do you know what I'm saying? The value is all the same. And if we can't do the chair thing, we won't be able to do the family thing well. If I can't do the banner thing, set up that banner, then I can't preach. You know what I'm saying? It's all the same value. And God's after that in our hearts. If Jesus didn't do what he did, if he didn't get this revelation that he was the servant, and gosh, none of us would have access to him. And I think similarly, some of you are being called to serve. And man, if, if we're not serving, then there's things that aren't happening in the kingdom. So you just obey God, okay? I, you know, I, I, there's, there's a, I have a small concern. My small concern is, yeah, we kind of need Sunday to run smoother. But that's really minuscule compared to the value of, we need a people whose hearts, we need to be a people whose hearts are ready to serve because all that God has for us, all he wants to do. Amen? Amen. Transformation starts with a serve. Okay, you start with a serve.